Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. While the topic day for 2024 might be artificial intelligence, the biggest challenge for the federal technology community will continue to be people. The obstacles around hiring, retraining, and training employees, as well as the return to the office mandate, is going to continue to test federal managers, who says, well, in his reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's Jason Miller asked a panel of current and former federal executives to weigh in on the top storylines for 2023 and what to expect in 2024. Jason joins me now with what they told him. All right, Jason, what did they tell you? First of all, they said there were some accomplishments in the past year. What did they highlight there? I talked to six people in and out of government, folks like Gundeep Aliwalia, the CIO at Labor, and Steve Brand, the deputy CIO for resource management at the Department of Energy, Guy Cavallo, the CIO at OPM, and then others like Renetta Spinks, the former uh, deputy CIO for the Marine Corps, also Mike Hettinger, Kevin Cummings, Jonathan Album, all names folks are probably familiar with if, if they've been focused on the federal IT and, and, and acquisition sector over the last uh, a few years. And what I heard was a whole series of interesting things, like the IDEA Act came up several times. This, this focus on customer experience, the implementation and the guidance that came from OMB this year, that was a big accomplishment. Several years in waiting, I think something that folks highlighted as this will help push forward the administration's plan around customer experience. Another big one was from Steve Brand from Energy. He talked about the special salary rate and this idea of paying IT and cybersecurity personnel more money. Tom, we know, based on our data that we've seen on our stories, we've posted that this has been a big topic. And again, this was a big accomplishment, according to Steve Brand. And, and I'll just highlight one other one, Tom, that, that really stood out to me. This comes from Renetta Spinks. She's now in the private sector, focused on cybersecurity. And she thought that the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency AI roadmap was a really important document. It was noteworthy because there's so much going on in cyber. The tactics, techniques, procedures are all changing, especially from cyber uh, threat actors, that you need this idea of, okay, how do you take advantage of secure, trustworthy AI to really battle against the ever-changing threats coming in from cybersecurity. So in some ways, the people challenge and the artificial intelligence challenge are related because you need the talent to do AI properly, and you got to have that talent stick around, so that relates to the pay issue. I think you're absolutely right, and this is what we hear time and again when we talk to all federal executives, whether in the IT world or not, that this talent issue, if we don't have the people, it doesn't really matter how great the tools are, the capabilities are, we're still going to be challenged. That's uh, another common theme that came out as they look back at 2020 and look forward to 2024. And you mentioned telework. Is that one of the challenges of just settling on a policy for everybody that we had in 23 that's carrying over into this year? From a telework perspective, Tom, I think what the, the return to the office is really what's come up time and again. What does that mean? How does how to make that work the best? How do you kind of balance out that need of every you know agency wants people in the office more often, but at the same time, how do you make it so it's it makes sense that they're there? They're not there on you know Zoom calls or WebEx calls or Microsoft Teams calls, and they are actually uh, having that collaboration that only happens or can only happen many times when you are in person. That's a good example of one big challenge that was in 23 will actually bleed into 2024. I just want to highlight two others that I think folks pointed out. Mike Hettinger, who used to work on Capitol Hill, he follows this uh, area very closely. And one of the things he mentioned was the Technology Modernization Fund. He says, listen, it's now six years old. The program has struggled, particularly in the eyes of Congress. So what will happen with the TMF in 2024? Tom, we know that Congress has appropriated no money so far for the TMF in 2024. Will that change? Uh, I know the TMF board has been very active 
in putting out the good news stories and the impact it's had. So I think that that's another area that I think a lot of folks will be looking at. And then, Tom, I think the last one I'll just mention real quick is AI. You can't not get around a conference, a discussion with a CIO or others in the federal technology sector without artificial intelligence, generative AI. We know that the Biden administration put out the executive order on AI. We know OMB has a draft memo out that implements a lot of that executive order. So there's a lot going on that, that I think folks are really looking, okay, we know what this was in 23. That's really going to move into 24 at a much faster pace. Yeah, there is a lot going on and they kind of converge as we've discussed. And you talk to them about budgets and it looks like maybe as we speak, there will be some sort of a budget deal for what's left of fiscal 24. And then there's the presidential election coming up next year. What did they say about all that? Yeah, interestingly, I asked them to rank in order between budget, workforce and presidential election. What will have the biggest impact on the federal IT and acquisition community? Tom, I really expected for them to tell me either budget or the presidential election. And time and again, I heard from especially the federal executives that I asked that they thought workforce, workforce and workforce was still the biggest issue. You know, when it comes to budget and CRs and changes to their budget, they always said, hey, we're used to this. It's not the best way to run a railroad as, as the common refrain we've heard, but they're used to it. And I think from a presidential election now, Tom, either they didn't want to touch it because it's a hot potato issue or they didn't really think it has that big of a deal, you know, kind of that downward effect on them at the IT cyber security level like it does you know at some of the bigger more focused areas whether it's and especially none of these guys are political appointees as well so maybe that's why they also felt like the presidential election would have less impact on them or their agencies specifically yeah i get the sense that they don't care what happens officially in the presidential election i mean personally they might but the problem is that with budget uncertainty and with policy uncertainty That tends to make the IT and the IT investment people a little bit conservative in terms of what they're willing to go out on a limb for because things could change beyond their control and then a lot of plans would have to be redone. I think that's the biggest challenge with any CR. Everyone knows, okay, we have to live under the CR. We were used to that. It happens every year. Congress hasn't passed the budget in you know, on time in, in something like 20 years. At the same time, the, I think you're right, Tom. It's it, what happens on Capitol Hill, what happens with negotiations between uh, the White House and, and Senate and House lawmakers, they don't really control. They can't really, they don't have much of a say in. So I think you're right. I think that's why it's probably not that top of mind for them as they enter 2024 versus something like workforce where they do have a much bigger say in. They do see that impact r- up close. If they can't hire enough cybersecurity workers, if they can't hire enough folks who know data or data scientists or cloud security or however you want to talk about whatever position you're trying to fill. And this applies not just to technology, it applies to acquisition, folks, contracting officers and, and cores, applies to the financial management, budget analysts, accountants, and applies to lawyers and doctors and nurses and so on and on and so forth. And I think everyone kind of feels like I can only control what I can control. And workforce is one of those things I can have a bigger impact on than, say, budget or even the presidential election. Yeah. So big as it is, the information technology complex, let's call it, is subject to the same vicissitudes as military or anything else big in the government. Yeah. I think one of the things we have to keep in mind as we kind of look into 2024 is what's really kind of be emerging and, and I think what's really going to affect them at a day-in, day-out level. And and Tom, I think one of the most interesting things that stood out is I asked, what was the big buzzword for 2024 that, that emerged post-2023? And, and again, I think most folks said artificial intelligence. Not surprising. Guy Cavallo said, no question, and give me a single sense. It is AI. Gundeep from Labor says generative AI going to play a big pivotal role. And in fact, he talked about the use of models and the human oversight that's needed. I also heard from Jonathan Album, the former USDA 
CIO, now at ServiceNow. Again, AI was the generative AI was there. And how it could impact things like Freedom of Information Act, fraud detention, and even just the basic things like administration and AI day in and day out sure. requirements. I think that, Tom, when it comes down to it, a lot of the experts I talked to really were focused on things they can control, things that were in front of them versus the bigger picture issues like elections and budgets. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, as always, thanks so much. My pleasure. And be sure to check out his notebook now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs 
and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.